Well, as we know, this has been an eventful uh, weekend for us. Um, this, with the loss of John Spring, which we were very surprised about. Uh, not so surprised. We all know that his health wasn't great and that uh, he was uh, in his final days, months, certainly probably his final year of life. But the Lord, in his sovereign wisdom, decided to take him home to be with himself on Friday evening. And so we want to certainly remember Ruth uh, and family in prayers. It was, thankfully, she was surrounded by family and her mother was in town and her brother as well. Uh, and so they were able to be there with her. And, but we want to remember them in prayer. There will be, I don't have an exact date, but a memorial service on uh, Wednesday here. I mean, an exact time. It will be in the afternoon sometime. Uh, so if you can make it, uh, plan on doing that, and I'll send out an email to everyone later once that gets settled, which will probably be sometime tomorrow. Interestingly, in the morning, before learning about Ruth, some of you might know, I don't know if the ones I've asked don't, but there's a man named Carl Smith who has been around uh, here for a while. He was married to his wife, Barbara Jones, for I forget how long, but many, many years. And uh, she was not only his companion and his helper, but also uh, a caretaker in many ways. He has a lot of physical issues. He can't see very well. Uh, she had to drive him everywhere. He didn't work. He was on disability or uh, workman's comp or uh, whatever because of just his physical condition. And uh, he found out actually just in the same night uh, that his wife died unexpectedly of a massive stroke. Uh, they don't have any children, uh, so there will be much support from their church, which is the OPC, Westminster OPC Church out in Hamden that will come around in many and in, in, uh, much in these next few days. So the point is, is that... Um, we have an uncertainty of life, and death is a reality of it. Thankfully, both of these, uh, both John Spring and Barbara Joan, were Christians. They were in Christ. They were in the Lord. They are with him now. They are comforted. Uh, those who are left behind experience the grief while they themselves experience the, the first taste of all that God saved them towards as they are in his presence awaiting the resurrection. But I thought just in light of these events, it might be good to take a break from 1 Peter and actually turn our attention this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So you can go ahead and make your way there uh, now. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And what really comes right out of the text, the title of the message is Words of Comfort. Words of Comfort from the Apostle Paul to those who were experiencing grief and uncertainty about those who had died, whom they loved, who had died in the Lord, who had died in Christ, who had died in faith, but nonetheless who had died and left them. And there was some confusion among this church that Paul is writing to clear up and to give them words of comfort and encouragement. And I thought that might be a good place for us to spend a few moments this morning before we come to the Lord's table together. As we remember together the Lord's death and the resurrection on our behalf and the Lord's soon return for us, His church. Now, just to give a little bit of context to remind us, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, as I already mentioned, Paul is writing to comfort those among the church who were experiencing grief because of their brethren, loved ones, both in the Lord, in other words, those who were part of the church, and possibly some family members who had died who were in the Lord. And they were experiencing a, a profound sense of loss and confusion. They were unclear about the condition of their state in light of all that Paul had been teaching them about the future and about their future with the Lord. Now, as you know, there are a great many issues that we could address in relation to end times, things related to eschatology and particularly the rapture uh, in this passage. However, that's not really the goal this morning, and so we're not going to get lost in those kind of details. And we've dealt with some of those things in more detail in the past and, and will in the future, and, and there's certainly a time and a place to... Uh, come to this passage to understand with that kind of clarity and specificity in terms of how this relates to the whole complex of events uh, in the end times. But the point of Paul in this passage wasn't to make a theological argument. It was, he says in verse 18, to comfort one another with these words. It was pastoral, not didactic in the sense of a theological debate. And so we want to stay with that intention as well. 
Indeed, there's important theology here that undergirds this passage, but the essential tone is one of comfort to those who were grieving, comfort to those who had experienced loss. And so that's my intention as well this morning. Now, as I already mentioned, that Paul is dealing with some confusion, confusion experienced by those in the Thessalonian church or the church at Thessalonica. It's uncertain what their confusion is from. They're a young church, possibly only months old, really. Paul had a very short stint there when the church was established before he left. Some of this confusion could simply come, become from the lack of information, a lack of a full grasp of everything that Paul had taught them, or some confusion on points that Paul had mentioned to them. He obviously spent a lot of time, among other things, on eschatology. In other words, those things related to the end times, that is a particularly strong theme throughout the letters of Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Speaking of the Lord's return, speaking of the judgment to come, speaking of the resurrection is a major theme in these uh, two epistles. And it's, it's possible that they just simply didn't grasp it all and some confusion had arisen among them. It's also very possible that they were confused because of false teachers who had come in. He's going to address that more specifically in 2 Thessalonians. He said there were some who had taught that the, that the day of the Lord had already happened and they were confused about how the resurrection connected to that. Were they in the time of judgment? They certainly were experiencing persecution and suffering from their culture around them. He addresses that as well. And so there was some confusion also brought around about by false teaching. Matter of fact, he says he, he's writing them in 2 Thessalonians, you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had taken place. And so whatever the exact causes or the complex of causes, the reality is, is that they were confused. And this confusion was adding to their grief over the loss of those who had died in the Lord. So Paul is assuring them that they have not missed the resurrection, that those who have died have not missed the resurrection, they've not missed out on the blessings that were promised in the gospel. And so he's comforting them with a common hope that we have, all of us who are in the Lord, namely, that we will together, all of us, equally be with the Lord in resurrected bodies at the end of the age, never to be departed from either him or each other. We will forever be in the presence of the Lord. So let me just read the passage and read along with me in verses uh, 13 through 18 in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then we'll just uh, walk through it for the time that we have together. Beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Look back up at verse 13. Let's just note first here an exhortation of comforting hope. So he's exhorting them. He's giving them a statement. He's encouraging them and pointing them to uh, the reality of their hope. Notice what he says right at the beginning. We do not want you to be uninformed. You could say this even if you, more literally. We do not want you to be ignorant. The idea is we don't want you to be without knowledge. We don't want you to be without understanding uh, concerning these events related to the resurrection. And, and so there's a, there's a counterpoint to what I said at first. So why we must not use Scripture, any of Scripture, or this text merely as information in theological debate. Scripture is nonetheless inextricably theological. And it is our doctrine that is the foundation of our faith and of our hope. And so Paul is directly using the theology of the resurrection to comfort them in their grief. 
The gospel, the resurrection, the return of Christ is intensely theological, but ultimately the end of all of that is to lead us to salvation and to hope and to godliness, never to intellectual debate on its own. And so again, this is the ultimate purpose. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed because your ignorance is going to compound your sorrow. Your lack of clarity of understanding doctrine is going to add to your grief. And so I want to clear that up for you, he's saying. I want to help you have better thoughts and more, more truth-controlled thoughts regarding uh, this, this grief that, that you have. And the comfort is needed, he says, by, about those who have fallen asleep. About those who are asleep, he says. Of course, we're well familiar with that as Christians, that, that the idea of sleep, that picture of sleep acts as a metaphor for death. It, it's not unique, actually, to Christians. That idea can be traced all the way back into the B.C. with some of the Greek philosophers, the idea of sleep referencing death, but it is, takes on a peculiar meaning in light of the gospel and Christian theology. And, of course, the, the picture here of sleep is of one, how they appear uh, in death. The, the eyes are closed, their body in rest and motionless, very much resembling uh, someone who is asleep. And, and really, when we, when we think of that term, it's a tender expression that gives comfort and perspective. It really is tender. I mean, what do you think of when you think of asleep? I, some of the first things that come to my mind are of a child. Uh, a child or an infant in its mother's or father's arms or a child lying in a crib and how peaceful and restful they are when they're asleep and how much you young mothers wish that they would spend more time in that state so you could enjoy them. But, but the, how peaceful and precious it is to see a child at rest and asleep. And even we know that in ourselves with our children, whether they be older or anyone that we see sleeping and there is just this state of restfulness. There is a state of restfulness that you know will end with refreshment or usually refreshment of body and soul. And so that's, that's really a, a precious picture that God gives us of those who have died in the Lord. And so he's writing here to, to inform them, he says, so that you're not ignorant, so that you have right information about what's going to happen in the end, the state of those who have already died. And he says, he gives the purpose there, he says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Who are the rest? Well, he defines them. They're, they are a category of people in the world who have this banner over them. They have no hope. They have no hope. And in Ephesians, he uses that to describe all of those who are outside of Christ. They have no hope in this world. I would, I would maybe phrase it this way just for clarity, is they have no real hope. They have no actual hope. That's the key marker of the unbelieving, particularly when they are faced with death. There is no real hope. No real hope. Now, in the worst case, when, when an unbeliever, somebody who is outside of Christ and they die, uh, the worst case is that there is, is a lack of hope that, that brings about devastation, a sense of grief that is uncontrolled. There's no answer. It's merely a darkness that oppresses the soul that cannot be removed. That's the worst case scenario. And that would probably be the fullest expression of what Paul was talking about, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews was talking about in chapter 2 when he says this. Just listen. That the devil who had the power of death that he might, and who were subject of fear through slavery all of their lives because of the oppression of the reality of death and that desire to avoid it, the desire to be unable to process that with any kind of reasonable hope. And then there's the best case scenario is, is those who, sort of more generally that we're used to, who do have a kind of hope, who may be unbelieving, but it's a, a vague kind of hope of being in a better place, everything being happy and all right at this point. Can't really say what's grounded in that hope, what that happiness is going to be, what the content of it is, but it's just sort of a way to, 
to salve the conscience, to make somebody feel better, that really doesn't even take into account, in many cases, the life that they lived in relation to God. It's just a way somehow to cope with the the devastating loss of somebody that's loved. They're in a better place. Or there is religious kind of hope that people have, but it's not grounded in truth, and so ultimately it's not a real hope either. It's a false kind of hope. You can have the hope of those who are in Islam that, you know, they're going to be with, if everything works out well and Allah decides to say that their good outweighed their bad and the balance is in their favor and therefore they'll be blessed or they die as a martyr or whatever, have 70 virgins on a planet or you can have Mormons who will populate their own planet or whatever. There's a kind of hope that's a religious hope. The, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. That wasn't their issue. They held that there would be a resurrection of the dead. Remember, that's something that the Sadducees denied. And they tried to trick Jesus uh, by giving him a ridiculous scenario regarding the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees did not have that. Paul, actually, when he was on trial in Acts, says he stands here for the hope that is the hope of Israel and his brethren, namely in the resurrection. So they had a kind of hope, but the problem was it was not a hope that was built on a true understanding of God's righteousness. So he says later that they sought to establish their own righteousness. They rejected the righteousness of God, particularly in that case, the righteousness that's found in Christ, who is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So there there are kinds of hope that unbelief can have. It can be vague. It can be attached to some religious idea. But they have no real hope. And that's what Paul is addressing here. They have no real hope, as do Christians. Of course, we've already touched on this somewhat in 1 Peter chapter 1. The hope of Christians is not some vague idea. It's not built on some kind of tradition or cultish sort of view of the gospel it is built on the truth and he refers to it if you remember it as a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead it is a hope in what is imperishable undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you and he's saying this is the kind of hope that you have and so what separates a believer from an unbeliever and particularly in the experience of the suffering of death is this it's hope it's hope that those outside of Christ have no real hope and those in Christ have an unshakable and a certain hope and certain hope and so there's a there's the mark and the dividing line of what, how we as believers experience the loss of those we love. And it's something that catches the eye of unbelievers uh, as well from a watching world. You remember now, this was in the context of the ability to suffer and endure that suffering righteously that he says in 1 Peter 3.15, when somebody asks you for the reason that the hope is in you, but that same principle is applied to as well when... The world can observe how believers experience the grief and the tragedy of loss of someone that we love. That there is a particular and a supernatural comfort that comes out of their hope, out of our hope in the gospel. And so I want you to notice one other thing here. Look at what he says. He says uh, that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You will not grieve as the rest who do not who have no hope. Paul is not saying here that Christians do not grieve. He's not saying he's not saying so that you will not grieve at all because unbelievers grieve because they have no hope. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is your grief will not be like. It's a comparative term that he uses here. It's not making an absolute distinction of no grief and grief, but saying your grief is of a different nature. In other words, your grief is of a different kind. You will not grieve as they do, like they do, who have no hope. Scripture presents grief as a normal part of this life. Presents tears and sadness and the sense of loss as a normal part of this fallen and unglorified life. We're going to experience it. We can't escape it. 
you'd go to a lot of places, but Paul wept over the spiritual blindness of Israel. In Romans 9, he says, I have unceasing grief. He shed tears for his nation who was blind and rejecting the Messiah, their hope and their salvation. Jesus wept over the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 23. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And so your house is going to be left to you desolate and destroyed. He wept over that. It grieved him. It grieved him. He wept at Lazarus' funeral. And Jesus' emotions there very likely include a sense of agitation at both not only the death, the reality of death, but the unbelief of the crowds. But the response of the Jews to say, see how he loved him, indicates there was a clear sense of sorrow as well in the heart of Jesus over the reality of death, even though he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, to weep with those who weep. In other words, there's a time for weeping. There's a time to be sad. There's a time to grieve. It's right to do so. And we read it this morning, but the promise of our eternal state is so precious because the proper sadness of living in a sin-cursed world is done away with. He says, what, what gives us hope and what we look forward to is this promise is that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Tears that would naturally be there because of the pain of this world. And there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and we're in the first things. So it's not that believers do not grieve. It's not that believers are not sad. It's not that believers shed no tears at the results of sin in this world and death being the ultimate one. His point is this, is that the grief and the sadness that Christians experience for those they have lost in the Lord are not and should not be the defining realities of our grief. They are not the controlling realities of our grief. They are real And they are experienced, but they don't define the experience. And that's the difference. That's the difference. What defines the experience, what is the truest and the deepest reality of Christians who experience the loss, is the hope. The hope that they have in Christ. So grief is a normal part of death. It's not sin. It's not weakness. It's not little faith. It's the reality of loving somebody that you're separated from. And that is normal. We live this side of the fall, and so we, death and taxes, that's guaranteed in this life, right? That's how the saying goes. But we must remember that death is unnatural. Death is not natural. When we experience the loss of someone, it's unnatural. We weren't created to die We were created to live. Death exists because sin entered into the world. Death is a continual reminder that the world is under still the curse of sin. So it's not natural. It's not normal in the sense of God's intention and purposes and in in sense what it will be eternally. It's unnatural, and so we we feel the unnaturalness of losing someone that we love. We feel the separation, and we feel that this is not how things should be. This is not how it should be, but it's this way because of the intrusion of sin. So Paul says next in verse 14, after giving a statement there, an exhortation to our hope, He gives the ground then of this comfort. How can Christians have this assurance? How can we have this hope? Well, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So for the Christian, we understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead after the accomplishment of his atoning death changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how we view everything. Everything now that we experience and how we view this world is viewed in light of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. 
It should be our defining worldview, the gospel, and everything that is intended in it. So to say that Jesus died is to say, in the words of Hebrews 2, that he tasted death for everyone, everyone who was his. He uniquely tasted death as our substitute and our sin bearer. It's not merely that he died to have compassion so that he could feel sorry for those who experienced death. It is that his death was accomplishing something. It's not merely a moral example. It was not merely an encouragement to love and obedience. It was all of those things, but it was more essentially and fundamentally a death that satisfied God's just wrath for our sin. Isaiah 53, 11, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. You can think experience there of that death. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And that is the defining mark of Christ's death and could only be true of Christ's death as the incarnate God-man. He died. He died as a substitute. In the words of Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In the words of Paul to the Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he didn't only die, but his death was to remove from us the sting of death. You know, if it weren't for Christ, we have every reason to fear death. I, I think one thought that goes through my mind often at funerals, and anytime someone dies, is it's amazing that we can have hope in the midst of that. If there's anything as a sinner that I should expect from death is judgment. But because of the gospel, and because of Jesus Christ, and because of his death, and because of his resurrection, that's not what we experience. He says this, listen. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is, it's his death that we believe in is an atoning death, is a sin-satisfying death is a redeeming death on our behalf. And then his resurrection is the affirmation of all of God's purposes in him. All of God's purposes in him. Listen to these precious words. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes, therefore also through him, meaning Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. Every promise of God is ratified, is guaranteed, is made certain because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how is that giving them hope? What does that ground us in in our hope? First, because his death and resurrection provides the certainty that not only our sins are forgiven, but the sins of those who have gone before us. We love John. We love others who have gone before us. But they were sinners. They were guilty. But we have the assurance that those sins through the death of Christ have been atoned for. They have been removed. He was killed because of our transgression. He was put to death for our transgression. And he was raised, Paul tells us in Romans 4, for our justification. Which means then our being made or counted righteous before God. It affirms that he is the true king, the son, the Lord of heaven and earth, Romans 1, 4. And it affirms his promise to us and to the disciples of his return in John 14. We'll look at this again. But listen to these words. Again, you're familiar with them. Let me just read them to you. John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. That's his promise. And it's a promise made possible because of the resurrection from the dead. So separation of death is not the ultimate reality for believers. It is a temporary one. Life in the Lord is the ultimate reality. And that's the ground of our hope. Now there's a real sense, let me, there's a real sense here in that the reality of the resurrection guarantees not only this, this future being in the presence of the Lord, that this death that believers experience is not some kind of soul sleep, this entrance into nothingness until something happens at some point in the future. The resurrection also guarantees and affirms that when we depart and those we love depart to be with the Lord, they are, in fact, immediately in the presence of the Lord. We are of good courage, I say, Paul said, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.23, it was very much better to depart to be with the Lord Very much better, Paul said. Jesus told told Martha that if you live, you will never die if you believe in him. So there is a moving out of this world into the next that is immediate transfer into a unique and fuller experience of Christ's presence, of the presence of the Father and of the Spirit and of the angels and all of the saints who have gone before That is a reality. What that state is like is not something that God has told us a lot about. We know it's not an ethereal kind of nothingness. We remember the Mount of Transfiguration. He was speaking with Moses and Elijah. There was some kind of bodily form they had. There's some, some kind of corporal reality to those who have departed. But it's not yet the resurrection body. It's not yet the resurrection Body. That's something to come in the future. That's something that's waited. Await, we await. Just briefly, let me mention, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you know, we look at the things not which are seen, the things uh, which are, but the things which are eternal. He says, we know that if we have an earthly tent, which is our, which is our house, is torn down, that is our bodies are destroyed. This is in context of his suffering. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens, In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up for life. Scripture never presents this sort of dichotomous position or view of us as humanity. In the, that, we're, that somehow the spiritual is more pure and more real and the physical is not so much. We are physical beings. We are essentially beings with a soul and that is what marks us off from the rest of creation being made in the image of God. But we were never designed to just be some kind of free-floating spirit. God's ultimate design in creation is essentially material. It is that we would be united, body and soul, in His presence. And that's the ultimate end of our hope. The ultimate end of our hope. And so Paul's focus here, however, is not so much on the immediate experience of God's presence that those who have died will have, but on the coming reality of the resurrection, because that is our ultimate hope. That is our ultimate hope. So notice the statement that he says next. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, I want you to just observe two things, just briefly. First of all, this. Notice God is the subject of the verb here. God will bring with him, there is Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. God is the one acting here. God the Father is the primary agent. But in a way that incorporates Jesus as the God-man and the mediator. So the resurrection is both the work of the Father and of the Son. And we've, we've looked at that before. 
It is the Father and the Son who are the agents of the resurrection, but throughout Scripture, the primary place of acting is given to the Father. Is given to the Father. And that's because of the divine relation of Father, Son, and Spirit. But notice secondly here that the statement that God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Now that's just for clarity's sake here. This does not refer to those who will come with Jesus from heaven. The statement here is not Jesus will come with all of those who are already with Him in heaven to the earth. Rather, the statement here is that Jesus will come from heaven to bring those who are in the grave and on the earth up with him to heaven. To heaven. That's the idea. Look at what he says. He defines that in verse 15. For, now he's giving the reason that he says that, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is so much here, of course, in relation to the rapture, how we understand the rapture, which is taken from the Latin translation of that verb coming there, or that word coming. There's a lot there along those lines, but I would just simply make this note here, that the Lord is returning from heaven, not in judgment, but in salvation, is returning from heaven to receive those in the grave and on the earth, not bringing them with him. So this is a different event than Revelation 19, and we would hold it as a different event than what we read about in Matthew chapter 24, although there are some similarities. But the point of this passage is simply this, is to assure us that we will have a future resurrection with the Lord. And so he confirms it again there in verse at the beginning of 15. We say this to you by the word of the Lord. What word is he talking about? Actually, this teaching isn't found anywhere in the Gospels. It's not specifically found in the Old Testament. So what does he mean when he says the word of the Lord? We have it by the word of the Lord. Well, it's possibly it was some prophetic word through someone else like Agabus, or there were certainly prophets, those who had the prophetic gift in 1 Corinthians and so forth, a part of the early church. It's possible it's any of those things, but most likely Paul is referring to direct revelation that he received from the Lord as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he made this same point. Don't, don't turn there. In Galatians 1, I'm just going to mention in verse 13, he says, You heard of my former manner of life. Oh, excuse me, in verse uh, 11, he says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, that was a gospel affirmed by the other leaders there in Jerusalem, but the point is, is that Paul, as an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles, as one who was untimely born, as one who was unique among the apostles, in that he was called as an apostle after the ascension of the Lord, the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord. And so the Lord's revelation to him was unique in that sense. And so here it is, no doubt, from that type of revealing work of the Lord with Paul, that he refers to here is in the word of the Lord. And what is the content of this word? He says this. This is what by divine authority, not by my word, but by what the Lord has taught and has revealed to you through me as an apostle of Christ, is the idea, is this. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words... The focus is on the return of the Lord who is coming again for His people, not with His people. He's not coming with them from heaven, but He's calling them upward to Himself to take with Him to heaven, back to where He came, is the idea. Is the idea. Now look at the glory of our comfort, second. The grounding of our comfort 
is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is presently at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his church, and will, according to the promise and the determination of the Father, return to receive by resurrection all who have died in him and who are on the earth at that time. That's the grounding of it. That's the certainty that we have. Now, the glory of our comfort. We read it earlier, but look at verse 16 and 17. The glory of our comfort, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is the shout of a command, the shout of authority. Command from the shout and the voice. It says the archangel is implied. Actually, there's no definite article there in the original. It's just of archangel. An archangel would be a better way to take that. It's... There's no specific archangel in mind. Michael is identified as an archangel, but he's not specific here. The voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. This is the glory of his return. And the first part of that statement, really in verse 16 captures the glory of this return. Christ is going to return as sovereign Lord. He's going to return in the cloud here, which is a, throughout Scripture a symbol of the presence of God, this unique presence of God. He returns as sovereign Lord and King to receive His own to Himself. He returns in the glory of the angels, in the glory of the Father to receive His own to Himself. The shout of an archangel, the trumpet of God. Tremendous, tremendous scene. The glorious return, a glorious taking of us who belong to him, to himself at that time. However, this is not the heart of it. The heart of it is really captured in verse 17. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds... To meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. That's the heart of it right there. This is the heart desire of the redeemed and the real hope that we have for those who have gone before us. And that we have for ourselves that we together shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. The glory and the beauty of heaven for the believer is Christ himself. And all that God is for us and for those who have gone before us in Christ. It is being with Christ in fellowship with the Father, filled by the Spirit, in a resurrected body, free from the presence of sin, totally fit to live in the presence of God, unified together in our enjoyment of one another, but ultimately that flows out of our enjoyment and our love for God. That is heaven. And that is our hope on a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, that's actually found in the very word here that's translated as coming. You know, for you theologically minded people, you know this is the parousia, which is the Greek term out of which we translated here, the coming of the Lord. And that term in and of itself has the idea of presence. You could think of it, in particularly in this context, of the coming presence of one, the appearance of the presence of one. The appearance here of the presence of God, again, that's captured in the imagery as well, not only of Christ himself, but the cloud and so forth and the angel. This magnificent presence of God who's come to receive his own in the resurrection. Now, I would note here just this point as well. This is the point of Christ's own resurrection. This is the ultimate purpose and the ultimate fruit. Christ became, or the Son became, the God-man Christ, united to flesh, God in flesh, in Christ, in flesh, you could say, to be our mediator, both in the perfection of His humanity, in the suffering of His death, and the atonement at the cross, and in His resurrection, was ultimately with this end in mind, that His resurrection would be our resurrection. That's the ultimate purpose of it, is that we would have resurrected bodies. That they would be, again, imperishable, undefiled, 
fit for his presence forever. As a matter of fact, he says Philippians, or Paul does in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He is then in that sense the first fruits Again, just listen to Paul's words. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by, since by a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is all who are in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15. So this is the ultimate end of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we would be together with him in a resurrected body. His resurrection ultimately has as its end our resurrection and our forever unitedness to him in these new bodies. Again, to have fellowship with him and the Father and the Son and the Spirit forever. Notice one other thing here too, and this is even more amazing. Even more wonderful and amazing than our desire as Christians, as regenerate believers who have been awakened to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is this, the fact that the Lord himself wants us to be with him. That's actually the more amazing thing. This is such tenderness and such love of Christ for his people. He's coming to receive his own to himself because he wants us to be with him where he is. Am I making that up? Nope, we read it earlier. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am, there you may be also. Remember, these are those he's already said, including us, ultimately is the redeemed, whom he has loved to the utmost. Matter of fact, he says this in John 17, as he prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory which you have given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He ends in saying, so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. The most amazing part of this is that the desire of God himself, of the Lord himself is that we would be with him. It's his desire. Paul mentioned it earlier, Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his godly ones. Why is that precious to God? Does he have some kind of joy in their death? No, but he has joy in their being with him. That's why it's precious. So from our side, it is that we long to be with him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. That's our side. And then God's side, Christ's side, is, and I desire nothing else than that my people be with me. And this is the love relationship and bond that God's people have with himself. Notice lastly here, just briefly as we come into the table, the comfort of our hope. The comfort then of our hope. Statement of our hope is that, our comfort is that we have hope. We don't grieve as the rest. The ground of it is because Jesus died and rose again for us. The glory of it is that he comes in the majesty of his divine nature and as our mediator to call us to himself to be with him forever. And here our comfort, it's the comfort that we're to receive. Verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we believe that the Lord died for our sins that he died for the sins of those who have gone before us in the Lord, that he was raised for our justification and our hope and our salvation. We believe that those who have gone before us, even this very moment, our beloved John Spring, who was sitting in that pew last week, is now sitting and standing in the presence of God. We believe that. But we ultimately know that's not the end that we really hope for. And that's not even the ultimate end of our comfort. The ultimate end of our comfort is that we will be there together with him and everyone else in a resurrected body, worshiping the Lord together and loving one another perfectly forever, filled with the life of Christ. And that's our comfort. 
And that the Lord is going to come and take us together. And so even though in this case John died before any of us who are in the room now. We'll rise together and together we'll experience this great reality of the resurrection. Together we will meet the Lord in the air. Together we will experience the glory of resurrected body at the same time. Together we will go off to enjoy our eternal comforts in Christ. Comfort one another with these words. There could be no more encouraging words than this in a time of loss. And so we remember that grief we have this side of heaven is our grief. It's not the grief of the one that we lost. It's not theirs. The things that we do with services and cards and all of those things, it's for us. It's for our comfort. It's for our encouragement. And the comfort is not in looking back. It's not looking back for memories. Those are certainly have their place, but there's always good ones mixed with bad ones, right? Because there's, we're fallen creatures. It's not really that isn't our comfort. It's not just the memories or past experiences on the journey to the true end for which we were saved. Our comfort is not in looking back, but in looking forward to the promise, to the return of the Lord, to being with Him forever in a resurrected body, Worshiping the Lord together and enjoying together with all of the redeemed His presence. And then at that time, all of the things of this world are for all of us going to be a distant memory anyway. Something that fades in some measure to the passing of time as it goes on and on in His presence. And we're reminded of that hope this morning in the table. We're reminded of that hope as we come together and we share in the table. And so I would just remind you that the table is for believers. Believers who honestly have this hope. If you are not a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not have this hope, if you do not have a real, evident love and trust in Jesus Christ today in your life, then this table is not for you. It is, in fact, a witness to you. It is a proclamation to you of the Lord's death until he returns. And the hope is, is that you would understand that and that you would receive Christ in truth. But for us who know the Lord, it is a time for us to together acknowledge our fellowship with him, our trust in his death and his resurrection, our hope in his coming return and the enjoyment of our present fellowship with him and one another. So as you take some time to prepare your heart and as the men come forward, Kathleen will play. And uh, then we'll, once the elements have passed out, we'll take them together.